Well, Paul Kern was born in Hungary and volunteered to be a cadet when World War I broke out. He won a medal for bravery. He was promoted to take charge of a specialized offensive unit. His entire company was killed in action and while they were defending a strategic sector, and he was the sole survivor. Uh, Kern was transferred to another unit. In battle, he was captured by the Russians, and then he was executed when a Russian soldier shot him point-blank in the head. Someone realized, though, that he was still alive, though obviously unconscious, and they got him to a hospital, Lemberg Hospital. Uh, the surgeons were successful in trying to repair what was there, take out the bullets, and managed to secure for Kern 40 more years of life. There's only one side effect from this uh, traumatic head injury that he sustained, and that is when he woke up from his surgery, he never went to sleep again. For the next 40 years, he never dozed off, never had a nap, never slept. A West Australian newspaper ran this article on January 30th, 1930. This was 15 years after the injury, saying, from the moment when he opened his eyes in Lemberg, he has not slept, nor indeed has he had the slightest desire to do so. The best brain and nerve specialists in Budapest have been unable to trace from x-ray examinations any abnormality. Dr. Frey, a noted university professor who has been watching the case for years, admits that he is baffled. His work has not revealed the slightest signs of deterioration. At first, he tried to sleep, but hours of wakefulness lying in bed exhausted him more than working. How would you like to employ this guy to work for you? A guy that never needs a break, he can work a 24-hour shift many days in a row. Can you re relate to Paul Kern? Somebody who wants to be awake hour after hour, day after day? Not me, I get sleepy just thinking about his sleeplessness. But this can be a very plaguing issue for many people. Uh, we call it insomnia. When you want to sleep, but you can't sleep. When you're trying to sleep, but you just lie there, tossing and turning, thoughts going through your head, you try drink some warm milk perhaps, you try counting sheep, you, you try relaxation techniques, nothing works, you just lie there hour after hour, and then of course the, the rest of the day you're a zombie because you're so tired, you can't wait to get to bed, and then that night you try to fall asleep, and either you fall asleep and wake up again, or you don't even fall asleep, and this can go on, and it can really drive you crazy. Well, I had a, a friend who was a pastor who once in a sermon said that when he has insomnia, he reads the book of Psalms. And he turns to the book of Psalms and he, he just starts in Psalm 1 and he sees how far he can get night after night reading through the Psalms. And when I heard this, I thought this is what I'm going to do next time I have sleeplessness, but I misunderstood what he meant. What he meant was that he started in Psalm 1 and would read as far as he could and then when he started getting sleepy, he'd go to bed. And the next night, if he had um, sleeplessness again, he would pick up where he left off and keep going. But I thought he was trying to get from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 and see how far he would get each night. And so I would do this night after night, starting in Psalm 1, and just never getting far enough, never seeing how does somebody finish the book of Psalms in a night. But it really does work to put your mind at ease, to bring um, restful and peaceful thoughts back to your soul, to recalibrate you. I would definitely recommend the book of Psalms. But as I was doing that one night, reading Psalm 
one, two, three, four, multiple times in a row, you know, many nights in a row, Psalm 4 struck me one night as all you really need to read and understand. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 4. Before we begin, I, I just want to give you this disclaimer. Not all insomnia is spiritually related. There are many different factors for not being able to sleep, and I don't want you to feel guilty and judged because you had a sleepless night last night, or maybe tonight you will have one, um, just thinking about how judgmental I was and saying that it was always to do with sin. It's not. It's not always an indication of a spiritual condition, of course. There are physiological issues. There are medical reasons. Just ask Paul Kern for one of them. According to the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most common reasons you wake up and can't go back to sleep is because you are old. And so there's nothing I can do about that. Um, Ecclesiastes 12.4 says that even a sound of a bird will wake you um, when you are uh, getting older. Teenagers, on the other hand, who should be doing something with their health, they can sleep whenever they want, for as long as they want. They'll sleep till midday, you know, if you let them. Of course, caffeine, the half-life of caffeine means that if you have um, anything with caffeine in it, basically after breakfast, that caffeine is still in your system by the next breakfast that you're having. So there's... There's that effect as well. Alcohol, if you have alcohol six uh, hours after you have alcohol, your body sugar drops to a, a point that if you're then trying to sleep, it'll wake you up. So people who have a little nightcap, it'll help them fall asleep um, to get over onset insomnia, but then six hours later, they'll wake up. Um, lights can wake you up. Temperature can wake you up. Sounds can wake you up. There's lots of different things that can wake you up and keep you awake. But I also suspect that Many of us have experienced those nights where you're awake and everything has gone fine. You didn't have caffeine, you didn't have alcohol, you didn't have a big spicy meal, there's no noise, there's no lights, the temperature's perfect, and you just cannot sleep because of what's happening in your mind. And this is where the psalm will help you. Psalm 4, just the context is given to us right there in the superscription um, at the top, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. This is a psalm that David wrote for public use in worship and very likely based on his own experience, as we shall see. We know that David wrote it, the king, but we don't know why. Although it doesn't take a psychologist to surmise that David was probably somebody very familiar with insomnia. In his life, he was hunted down by King Saul, and then later by his own son, Absalom. At times he was plagued by guilt for his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. He had to deal with stressful situations in his family, the rape of his daughter, the betrayal of his eldest son, the murder of his younger son, the death of his infant son, as well as constantly waging war with other nations and trying to defend Israel. Plus, he had multiple wives at the same time. That is a recipe for distress in the family, right? Talk about a stressful career and family situation. He's the perfect person to write to us about what to do about insomnia. Let me read the whole psalm for you. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that Yahweh has 
set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Well, we're going to look tonight at six meditations instead of medications, um, you could say, or six alternatives to counting sheep. And they are presented in the psalm in pairs. So they come in, in these couplets. The first is the cure and the cause. Then we'll look at the reason and the response. And then the perspective and the peace. All of these have to do with sleeplessness and stress and how to deal with those things. And so we'll look at these six meditations as they come. Firstly, the cure and the cause. I just want to mention as well that when you see the word selah in a psalm, you notice that I read it. I always read it when we read publicly as well, just so that you get used to seeing those there. No one's 100% sure of what that actually means. It can mean a crescendo in the music. It can mean pause and meditate over what's just been said. But um, commentators agree that most often in the Psalms, not always, but most often it, it supplies um, a break, a logical um, or thematic break that splits the Psalm up for you. And so that's just always a, a good way to, to split psalms up if you're not sure how, if you're doing an outline. So that's what, the, what we're going to follow tonight as well. Verse 1 says, Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. There's another imperative in there as well. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Um, I had a good question uh, just recently about when there's commands, when people command God, they use imperatives when they speak to God, um, it sounds kind of jarring to our ears, doesn't it? It sounds like you, you don't really talk to your boss that way. Um, you know, give me a raise. You say, please, um, would you? You know, even sitting at the table, if the kids say, Dad, give me the salt. And I kind of look at them and say, let's try that again. Please, Daddy, may I have the salt? Or would you please pass me the salt? You know, in our English, we, we couch things in terms because there's different levels of respect. You know, if you're speaking to your kid, you just tell them, stop doing that. If you're speaking to someone in authority, could you please consider to stop doing that, you know? But in, in Hebrew, they, they don't do that. They just issue the command, and when you learn about it in, imperatives in Hebrew and in Greek, you learn that they have a, a wide semantic range that can be everything from a command to a request. And so don't be put off by commands in, in Scripture that people issue to God. The point here is that there's an urgency. Answer me, Lord. I, I need help. Please. It's like the phone's ringing and you say, pick it up. Please, please pick it up. I need that. And so the first pair of thoughts here to come for us to meditate on is the cure and the cause of the, the distress and the anxiety that's happening here. And I love how the first line of the psalm is a prayer. It's an, it's an action in itself. Uh, it is the major cure for insomnia. Praying to God is the cure for spiritually related um, distress that can keep you awake at night. So that's the very psalm opens with, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief. 
when I was in distress. He's thinking of past times when I've been in distress, you gave me relief, and the implication is I need that now again. So be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This is the, the cure for the problem, is this learning to pray to God. Now, the scripture is full of references to sleep and sleeplessness and their various causes. Um, one cause of, of sleeplessness can just be stress that you're under because of um, something that's happening in your life. Psalm 102, for example, in verse 5 says, Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness. What are owls known for? Are they, yeah, they're nocturnal. They're awake at night when everyone else is sleeping. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Psalm 102, the psalmist is under stress because of people and he feels like a, an owl. He's the, the, the bird that's awake at night. And he says, I just, I lie awake because of that stress. It could be finances as well. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Ironically, sometimes people who have less money sleep better. They've kind of got into the groove of survival. This is a laborer. He's working hard. He's tired from his labor. He goes to sleep. He has a clear conscience. He has a, uh, you know, he might be a little bit hungry because he doesn't have enough money for food, but he's able to sleep. Whereas uh, often it happens that the more you have, the more you have to lose. And so the more you worry about that. If your heart is set on your wealth and there is something threatening your wealth, that is going to be more disruptive to your sleep than if you never had it to begin with. And it's just one of the things scriptures talk about. This rich person, his stomach is full, and yet he cannot get to sleep. He, his stomach that's so full will not let him sleep. It could just be grief or depression. There's something going on in your life that's just worn you down. Psalm 6 and verse 6. Um, Psalm 6 verse 6 says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief and it grows weak because of all my foes. Sometimes you're just lying awake at night and you're just crying. You know, you've heard the phrase, crying yourself to sleep. Just, you, you, that's when the emotion is there. There's nothing to distract you anymore and that's why you can't sleep because you're thinking about it. So you're tossing and turning, maybe from stress, worry, anxiety, any word you want to use, guilt, discontentment, even excitement or nervousness about something that's coming, some sort of anticipation. Sometimes it's because of mosquitoes or fireworks uh, or partying neighbors. Unfortunately, Psalm 4 is not going to help you with mosquitoes. It's not going to help you with your neighbors. Although there's some imprecatory psalms that you might want to consider praying. But in this case, David has narrowed down the cause. The cure is praying to God, but he, he talks about the cause for this distress. And it's, it's embarrassment. Look at verse 2. Oh, men. So now he's not addressing God anymore in, this prayer, in prayer, but in the psalm. He says, oh, men, people, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies. 
This is embarrassment. His reputation is at stake here. He's concerned about lying rumors, vain words, words that don't really have any uh, veracity to them, and yet people are talking about it, thinking about it, and his reputation is at stake. That's something that'll keep you awake at night. For any politician, rumors can be devastating to their ability to rule, but especially a king in the ancient Near East, rumors could turn into insurrection and rebellion. Rumors could be downright dangerous. In fact, we see that the way that Absalom rises up against David is he sits in the gate and he spreads rumors, lies about his father that cause unrest among the people. And so this isn't paranoia. This is a legitimate concern. Kings, you can imagine, would be some of the most sleepless people around. It's not just that your job's doing bad. It's not that you can resign or be voted out. The only way out is for you to die. And so if people are discontent with you, there could be a coup. We see in Esther, chapter 6, verse 1, opens with the, the line that the king could not sleep that night. King Ahasuerus could not sleep. And so what he tries to do, you know, he's not a believer in Yahweh. What he tries to do is he gets the people to bring the history books. Why do the reading yourself, right, when you're a king? Have other people read it to you. So he wakes up his assistants, and now they, they're up, and they're reading history because that's a good way to fall asleep. And then that's when he remembers about Mordecai, that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded, and he wakes everyone up and gets it done. It's like, if I can't sleep, nobody can sleep. But here David inserts this aside in the psalm directed at the rumor mongers themselves who are besmirching his reputation. Oh man, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? This is a clear and present danger in his life. Wouldn't that keep you awake? If you knew your son was spreading these rumors and raising an insurrection against you? Imagine people in your office told your boss that the reason the project was uh, running late is because you were the one dropping the ball. Now your reputation's at stake. Maybe there's a promotion that you might not get because of this. Maybe there's compensation or a bonus or something that happened. Maybe you even end up getting fired. This is going to keep you awake. You wouldn't just peacefully go to bed that night if you knew you had a meeting with your boss the next morning. So the cure is given up front in the opening verse because it is the universal cure for all thought-related insomnia. Prayer. Pray about the things that weigh on your heart. What David's doing here that I find interesting is he's putting into words what's keeping him awake. He's putting into words. He's articulating it. And, th and that's just a helpful, practical thing for you to do. If you're ever just lying there and you can't sleep, pause for a moment and think about, what is it that's keeping me awake? What is it that I'm worried about? What is it that I'm fearful about? What is it that I'm excited about? W what's going on? What are my thoughts doing? And then articulate that. And that's something that prayer helps you do. Prayer forces you to, rather than just have this feeling of something going on, to put it into words. Dear God, I'm worried about that meeting with my boss tomorrow because people have been lying about me. Okay, well, step one is you're talking to God. Step two is you're starting to think about what the problem actually is. And, and it's almost like, you know, once you've dealt with it and it's not this nebulous thing that's just scaring you, like, what is the worst thing that can happen to me? And rehearse it and talk to the Lord about that. If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're fretting, it could be anything, finances, it could be your health, it could be your children, it could be childlessness, it could be singleness, it could be anything. Your first reflex should be talk to God. That's why Philippians 4, 6 says famously, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer 
and supplication, which means to ask something from God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those things go together. The anxiety that's there, let them be known to God. Talk to him about it. Supplicate him. Give thanks for what's happening. And his peace will guard your heart and your mind. I just remember so many times in seminary where my monthly payment would come up and I didn't have money to make my tuition payment. It was always my big fear was I wouldn't be able to make it through seminary. And I remember this one time I, I went to the, the little box where they, our little mailbox where they put our exams to go and see what I got a grade in. When I opened it, there was an envelope in there with cash that paid for my tuition that month. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with thankfulness, but it was anonymous, of course. Um, and I, I went and spoke to the, the secretary who put it in there because I knew her, and I said, um, could you tell me who it was just so that I can say thank you? And she said, no, um, they asked me not to, but what I can tell you is this. It wasn't, same, it wasn't the same person as the last time that this happened. And that reminded me, oh yeah, this has happened before. <laughs> this has happened, and it's not even the same person. This is God providing for me in different ways by stirring the hearts of different people that I can't even thank, and I'm here today because of those people. But just to think that they were, this was a lesson that the night before I was tossing and turning and worried and, and fearful about something, not trusting God that this would be, what, what, if I don't, what if I have to get out of seminary because I don't have money for tuition, as if, as if God you know, didn't know what he was doing. Like this would be against God's will, and he was like, oh yeah, I kind of dropped the ball on that one. And instead, here's this token, this physical token of his... Uh, love and care and concern and provision for me, and I had had that before. So rather than worry about it, what I should have been doing is thanking him for the last time and thinking about the last time and thinking about his faithfulness, knowing that he is a faithful God. So this is the cure and the cause here. Secondly, let's look at the reason and the response. The reason and the response. Verse 3. But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. And then this, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. So here David gives the reason why you can pray to God about anything. The reason you can pray to God about anything and everything that your heart has on it. And he suggests a very practical response to that reason. So there's the reason and the response. The reason you can pray to God about anything, any rogue thought that's in your mind, that's bouncing around like a pinball machine, setting off these alarms, keeping you awake, is because God cares. That's the reason you can talk to him about this. It's not, it's not a technique. It's not like a meditation technique. Oh, if you're worried about something, just articulate what it is and say over and over that everything's going to be fine. That doesn't work. This is different. This is, yes, you, you think about what's bugging you, you rehearse what it is, but then you hand it over to God and you pray to him and God actually hears you. So it's not, it's not a technique. You are getting God involved in the thing that is keeping you awake by speaking to him. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. This is David just rehearsing himself. This is a good thing to do, to pray to God. And the reason I can pray to him is because he's actually there. And he actually listens to me. And he set me apart for himself. Of course, this pres 
presupposes that you're one of the godly ones, that you're one of his. This is not a privilege that's just open to anybody in the world at any point in time. But if you are at peace with God through Christ, you have this privilege. He set apart the godly for himself, and he hears when I call. And maybe nobody else cares about what's going on in your life, but God cares. First Peter 5, 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's why you cast your cares on him, because he cares for you. That's First Peter 5, verse 7. Now, the verse doesn't say that God cares about what you care about. Because the thing that might be keeping you awake might be something that's really trivial. I think, like, I posted this picture on Instagram, and I'm not getting as many likes as I want, and it's keeping me up, and I've got this anxiety. What if this happens? What if that happens? And, and you think, well, I'm not even going to pray about this because this is such a, a little thing. God doesn't care about it, and you're absolutely right, and neither should you. You should stop it. But... I'm not saying God cares about the things you care about. I'm saying God cares about you. And so when there's something that's bugging you, even if it shouldn't be, he cares about you. It's kind of like, you know what it's like if you're a parent and you've got the little kid that comes to you and it's like, I'm scared. I heard a noise. There's a monster under my bed. Now, you know, as a parent, there is no monster under the bed. It's probably a rat um, or whatever. You know, if, you're, if it's real, there's no monster but it doesn't work to just say to the kid, this is silly, monsters don't exist, there's no monster, go back to bed. Because you care about your child. So you get them and you go and you go with the flashlights and you see, look, there's no monster, let me show you, whatever. It's, you're condescending to them because you care for them, even though the issue is a non-issue in your mind. In the same way, I would say most issues we have are non-issues in God's mind. He's like, this is not a big deal. You're, you see something's happening in the news. Oh my goodness, there's this war or rumor of war and what's it going to happen? And all my kids going to get drafted? And, and, and God's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. That's not going to affect you. It's not even an issue. But, but he still cares for you. And you don't know that it's not an issue. And so that's the comfort that David has here is that my God hears me. He set me apart for himself and he, he listens to me. And so you should just, Unburden yourself to him. Um, I, I just think of, you know, like fly fishing. I don't care about fly fishing, but my son does. And so I've learned all about fly fishing now. I've, I've learned about, you know, uh, where you have to be in the river and what time of year there and the, the different types of trout that there are and the little, the woolly buggers that you have to put on and the nymph. I didn't cuss. That's what they're called. They're called woolly buggers. Um, and the little nymph and the propers and these things. And, and why do I know these things? I don't care about the subject, but I care about the person who loves the subject, right? In the same way, all the little things that you're into, um, they're endearing to God because, because you're endearing to God, because he loves you. And so never feel like, well, there's this, I, I can talk to my friends about these things, but I can't talk to God about these things because they're beneath him. Well, yes, everything's beneath him. <laughs> That's not the point. He loves you. And he's interested in you, and he wants to hear from you, and he cares for you. Verse 3 says, But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. 
And then there's verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now, this is an interesting verse because there's a command to be angry, and you're thinking, but isn't the Bible saying that anger is a sin? Yes. And this is a verse that Paul uses um, later on in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about anger, right? And the word here, if you have like the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB, they actually translate it tremble. Um, it, it means to be like worked up, um, to be agitated. It's kind of a neutral term. It doesn't always mean to be angry the way we think of, you know, uh, you know, short-tempered or whatever. It just means that there's something that's inflamed you, something that's agitated you, that's stirred up your soul, that now you're, you're, you need to deal with it. It like heats you up. And so, of course, anger is a, a good translation of that because that's, a, that's what happens when you get angry. Something happens and it inflames you, it agitates you, it spurs you to action. You, you have feelings about it. You want to do something about it. But the command is be angry and do not sin. These are not two commands. Be angry. Simultaneously, do it without sinning. So there is a way to be agitated there is a way to be stirred up about something that's happened that you are, we could use the word, upset about. That, but you could do that without sinning. God, for example, we are told, can be angry. He gets angry at sin. He's angry at the wicked every day. Jesus got angry on occasion. He clears out the, the temple. Anger is not sin in of itself. James clearly says in James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So your anger doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, the anger of man, but there is an anger of God that is righteous, and we call it righteous indignation. You've heard that term? When Jesus is angry that people are being exploited in God's temple, that they have made this holy place a den of thieves, that anger agitates him and he drives the cattle out of the temple and he overturns the money tables, um, the money changes tables. So let me just summarize that it is possible to, without sinning, be agitated about something that happens. And the, the, the guideline that I use for myself is, Am I the one that's being affected, or is God's glory the one being affected? See, if I'm getting agitated and upset and angry about something because it's an affront on God's glory, that is following the example of Jesus. But if I'm getting agitated and upset and angry about something that's affecting me, then I'm becoming self-centered, and I'm making everything about me instead of God's glory, and that's sinful anger. And so you just need to be careful about that. Let me give you an example. So the difference between you're driving in, tra in traffic and somebody c cuts you off and they don't use their indicator and you have to hit the brakes and you feel that that's wrong and you get angry and you honk at them and you just tell them how angry you are. That's one kind of anger because it's affecting you. It's agitated you. You want justice. The other kind of anger is when you're driving um, and you see a billboard for an abortion clinic. You know, this would happen in South Africa. People would come and put posters on our church sign um, with discounted abortions. And I would get so angry. <laughs> Not about the fact that it was on our sign, but that somebody would have the temerity to plaster that sin on a sign that's inviting people into the house of God. 
and I would go and I would tear that down, and it was, and I, I would be shaking sometimes. I'd be so upset, and then I would have to calm down and think, no, don't. And then I realized, no, that this is this is okay. <laughs> this is the outlet for anger. Be angry at people trying to prey on the innocent, people that are striking against the image of God. No one's trying to abort me. No one's trying to attack me. You see how that's completely different than when I'm driving in traffic and someone cuts me off? Because let's be, let's be honest, when someone cuts you off in traffic, your thought is not, oh, but the glory of God by the violation of Romans 13 is this person just broke the traffic laws. Bring justice upon that person. Not because of me. I mean, I don't care what happens. To no, that's not how, what it is, right? It's you. So that's how you, you can be angry and not sin. Be agitated about the right thing. And so if you're lying in your bed at night and you're awake and you're agitated and you're upset and you're angry and you're stewing on something because of something someone said about you, because remember that's the context here of David, these false lies, these rumors about him, then you need to remember you need to not sin. When you're angry, make sure you're being angry about the right thing. And if it's about you, you need to let that go. And you need to stop. You need to repent of that. Because that is going to keep you awake, and that's not worth keeping you awake. Be angry, but do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, verse 4 says, on your beds, and be silent. To ponder, to think, to consider, to meditate. When I, when I use the word meditate, by the way, don't get confused. I'm not talking about Eastern transcendental meditation that teaches you to empty your mind. Biblical meditation is to fill your mind with a truth, to fixate your mind on a truth. The way uh, Jewish people would meditate in the Old Testament is they would take a phrase of Scripture and they would repeat it over and over and over so that their mind is focused on that truth. That's different from what Eastern meditation will teach you, you know, let it go and empty your mind and all those things. And, and pondering your own hearts, so in, internally, in your heart, don't go and rant about it on Facebook. There's so much stuff that you might read on Facebook that upsets you. Just learn to not answer. Think about it, ponder it in your own heart. Keep it to yourself. Deal with it. Hand it over to the Lord, but don't publish it. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. What great advice. Don't talk about it. Don't write about it. Don't Spray it all over someone else. You take care of what's happening in your heart. Don't write an email to get it off your chest. Don't call the person to give them a piece of your mind. People often think that that's going to make them better. That's advice I've been given. They, they think it's going to make you feel better. If you're upset at that person, just call them and give them a piece of your mind. You'll, you'll feel like you got it off your chest. Write them a letter. No, no, do the opposite of that. <laughs> Be quiet. Be silent. You think about it, you deal with it, you hand it over to the Lord, don't publish. In 1945, when Harry Truman became president, he was faced with leading the nation in recovery after World War II, and under the stress, it became very difficult for him to rein his temper in at times, and he would get short with his wife, Bess, and um, once he had been neglecting her for a while, and and she was already, I don't know where it was, Camp David or whatever, but he came to meet them for Christmas, meet his family. Uh, it was in Missouri. She was already in Missouri. And so he came to meet her, 
and the family, and um, he was greeted by the first lady who said, I guess you couldn't find any more reasons to stay away. As far as I'm concerned, you might as well have stayed in Washington. And that made him so angry that he turned around and left. And he went back to Washington, and he just left her. And um, that fight persisted for two days. Oh, no, but he didn't turn around. That's right. He, that fight stay, he tried to stay, but that fight kept on going for two days until he got fed up. So he goes back to Washington. And when he gets back to Washington, he's obviously been stewing about this this whole time and all the things he wanted to give her. So he sits down and writes this letter, a scathing letter to his wife, Beth, and he mails it by special delivery so that it would arrive at her home um, where she was at in Missouri the next day. And then he went to bed thinking that now he's got it off his chest and he's committed to writing and he's sent it off. And then he tossed and turned all night long, regretting what he had done and realizing what he should have done. And he woke up early the next morning and he called the postmaster general with instruction to find that letter and burn it. <laughs> now, not all of us have that presidential power <laughs> to call the postmaster general and have the intercept the letter. So the better advice is just don't write it to begin with, right? Well, if you write it, burn it before you mail it because you can't call it back. And how many of us have done that where we've, we've sent off this thing and now it's out there and you're like, oh, I, I wish I could pull that back. And so David is saying just you, you ponder it, you lie in your bed, you think about it, you know, and you be silent. Don't get up and get it off your chest. So finally, we look at the perspective and the peace. We've seen the cure and the cause, the reason and the response to be quiet. Um, and now perspective and peace. Verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us. O oh Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound in peace. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. You could say there, when it says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You could add there, and pills and medication. You know, when, when everything's going well with them and they've got enough food and they've got enough wine, um, that's when they're joyful. Often in our world, the way that looks is people try to medicate their happiness. They, they feel sad, they feel anxious, and so they take pills to calm them down, to help them sleep, but they're not dealing with the root. They're not dealing with the issue. They're not dealing with the Lord. They're resorting to techniques. They're, you know, counting sheep. They're, they're taking uh, higher doses of melatonin or whatever it is. They're, they're getting prescriptions for medication. They're they want to go to sleep so badly, but they're, they're not asking themselves, why am I awake? Is it physiological, in which case medication is helpful, or is it spiritual? Is there something going on here? Am I anxious about something I shouldn't be anxious about? Am I guilty? Am I feeling guilty about something that I've done? My favorite French proverb is, there's no pillow as soft as a good conscience. There's no pillow as soft as a good conscience. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you're going to sleep better. 
Put your trust in the Lord. Offer the right sacrifices. It's just another way of saying trust and obey. Obey God, right sacrifices, keep short accounts, maintain a clear conscience. Proverbs 11.8 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. If you are doing the right thing, if you're a righteous person, you're heading away from trouble, Proverbs 11.8. Also in Proverbs 15.29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. That's Proverbs 15.29. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. This is a great verse for people that suffer from paranoia, suspicions. They're worried about being caught. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. There are people that are constantly worried that they're going to get caught, even though there's there's no one there. And yet, there's no one going after them, but the, the righteous is as bold as a lion. You get called in to the principal's office or the, your boss's office or a cop pulls you over, you're, you're fine, you're content. I'm not doing anything wrong. You want to search my car? You can search my car. I'm, I'm not hiding anything. You know, People are always like, well, don't do that. You know, Then the government will know this about you. I'm like, they, I got nothing to hide. You know, If they're that bored that they're looking at my life, you know, maybe they can use the practice and go catch someone that is hiding something. It's like, you know, when, when you're doing the right thing, you can be as bold as a lion. But when you've got a guilty conscience, then anytime somebody mentions something, you're like, do they know? How do they know about that? Is that what they were talking about? They were talking about that thing? I wonder how they found out. I always think of that practical joke that Sir Conan Doyle played on his friends. Sir Conan Doyle, the, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, he wrote... Um, a letter to 10 friends, 10 letters, and sent them to his 10 friends. And all it said was, um, fly at once, all is discovered. And all of them left London immediately. (laughs) He didn't even know what it was. He was like, people know about it. You need to leave. And everyone was like, oh my goodness, they found out. And they left. And (laughs) it was just a practical joke. But it just shows you what their consciences were. Like, oh my goodness, thanks for the warning. This thing that I've been hiding, people now know I need to leave. And it, it's just, it reminds me that, man, that's, you don't want to live like that. You don't want to be somebody who's running when no one's even following. Compare that to Peter and John when they're in jail. What are they doing in, j- in jail? They're singing songs. They know that they're in jail for reasons that nothing they've done wrong. They were just obeying God, so they're fine. Jesus. Jesus slept like a baby on a, on a boat that was being storm-tossed to the point that everyone thought that they were going to die. And he was just asleep. He was tired, you know, clear conscience. Matthew 6 says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. That's the perspective. Offer the right sacrifices. Keep, keep short accounts with God. Do the right thing. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else will fall into place. He says in verse 6, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You know, a lot of people think that their joy and their peace comes from these outside circumstances. Uh, When my grain is about, when I've got a robust bank account and everything's going well for me. And, but David says, no, the reason I'm coming to you to help me with the sleeplessness is because I know from experience that you put joy in my heart. I can get my joy, my peace, my comfort directly from God. I don't need the circumstances to be right. There were times where David was on the run when, when Absalom had moved into the palace and had sent people out to kill David. 
And he's saying, you know, I'm not, I can't wait until I've got enough grain and wine to feel happy again. I, I need this to come from you. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when everything's going well for them. And here's the final condition of the one who's cured from insomnia. It's called peace. Verse 8, in peace. I'll both lie down and sleep. Not just lie down and stay awake, but I will lie down and sleep. There it is. Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I will die the day you have chosen and not a moment before. I will lose my freedom or lose my palace or lose my position or whatever it is if that's what you decide. But if you're going to keep me safe, Nothing they do can touch me. And we know from the rest of the story that David ends up back in the palace. He ends up alive. Absalom ends up dead. God knew all of that. David didn't. But David knew this about God. He's in control. He's in control. He's the one that the safety needs to come from. And so he can lie down and he can sleep because it's God alone who can protect him and provide. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, you think that your, all your work is what's going to keep you safe. All your work is what's going to provide for you. All of your anxious toil, everything that you pour into your career, into your business, into your relationships, into your health, that's what's going to keep you healthy. That's what's going to keep you safe. That's what's going to keep you provided for. He says, it's in vain that you rise up early, go to bed late, uh, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That's where you get your peace from. Do all those things, but don't put your trust in them. Put your trust in the Lord. Get your clear conscience from him. He will give you sleep. Now, peace in this life is only available to those who are at peace with God. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. We can't have peace with God without Jesus paying the debt that we owe. So just rehearse to yourself the gospel. And Jesus lived the life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserve and conquered the grave for all of us for eternity if we would only believe in him then you don't need to count sheep because you can talk to the shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that our peace comes from you, that our joy comes from you, that our rest comes from you. I pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, who's under some sort of distress, um, any kind of stress from work or relationships, or regret or sin and guilt, I just pray that they would turn to you, that they would speak to you and articulate their issues, hand them over to you, confess their sins or hand over their fears, that your spirit would guide them into the peace that surpasses all understanding, that they would have a, a soft pillow of a clear conscience and that you would grant us sleep. And we can pray these things because Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross and we thank you for this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.